man's disobedience brought about death, both spiritual and physical. And yet, even in our disobedience, God did not leave us without hope. He had a plan to redeem mankind. This is Nita Erlene, and you are listening to the TRC Ministries Podcast. If you are just finding our podcast, we are in the middle of an eight-part series on the Bible message in a nutshell. Last week, we covered the fall of man. Today, we continue with part five, the fall of angels and the plan of redemption. Here is Tori Bjorklund, president of TRC Ministries, teaching at Caravan Fellowship. The fall of man was not the first fall. There were angels who, as spiritual beings, also had the ability to choose. Some of those angels chose to rebel against God and were cut off from the spiritual sustenance provided by a union with God. This first fall occasioned the creation of a realm that was intended to serve as a realm of banishment, a place from which God would withhold his presence a place utterly devoid of the presence of God. This place we call hell will become the repository of anything in which God cannot be contained. By banishing everything that does not contain God to hell, the rest of reality will once again be restored to harmony with God. Being reconciled to him and returned to the previous state of all reality being contained in him. So you might remember that I started out this series saying that before physical reality, there was a substantial reality, and it was all contained in God. And this is the reference then, the previous state, returning to to that. So here are my assertions. Angels were created prior to the world and therefore prior to man. This, some of these uh, assertions, there's a fair amount of uh, reading between the lines, if you will, in Scripture. God did not go out of his way to give us much detail about the story of angels. Um, imagine that there's a lot that we'll learn after this world has come to an end and we are with God in the uh, the new heaven and new earth, and we'll get a chance to probably learn about some of the angels' story. But um, in Job, we have God speaking to Job, asking him, were you around when I created this and the angels or the stars sang about it? So Job 38, 4 through 7, God is talking about that and how the angels rejoiced at the creation Angels are spiritual in nature. We find that in uh, Hebrews 1.14, for example, they're referred to as spirits. Also Matthew 17.18. And so we talked about what it means to be spiritual previously, and spiritual beings have a will. That is one of the natural aspects of being a spirit, is having a will. And in fact, the will and spirit are almost indistinguishable from each other scripturally. So being spiritual, they have the ability to choose. Some chose to rebel, including Satan. So we have some longer passages. Isaiah 14, 
13 and 14, it's specifically about the sin and the fall of Satan. But that whole passage, or large portion of that passage in Isaiah 14, is understood by many Bible scholars to be a reference to the fall of Satan. Also, Ezekiel 28 and 15 and 16 are the two verses there that are are really relevant to the rebellion of Satan. And Revelation 12.4 talks about, this is, you might have heard, a third of the angels fell with Satan. This is somewhat unclear as to whether this is the reference to the initial rebellion or not, but that's kind of the interpretation of Revelation 12.4. And uh, Matthew 25 through uh, verse 41 talks about Jesus is talking about uh, judgment, and he says to those on his left to depart to uh, hell that was prepared for the devil and his angels. And so there's the reference to devil and angels that followed him as well. So there was a rebellion of Satan and, and, and other angels. Another assertion that I'm making here is God created hell for the devil and his angels. That is from Matthew 25, 41. Hell is someplace that is outside the kingdom of God. It's an implied assertion in my earlier statements. I didn't explicitly say that, although I did say that it is devoid of God. And if we remember the definition of the kingdom of God is that is where what God wants done is being done. And the presence of God is always where what God wants done is being done. And so he withholds his presence that is outside of the kingdom of God. That's, that's why I say it was implied in what I was saying there. And you'll find in Revelation 22 and also uh, verse 15 and also Revelation 21 verse 8, you'll have, find a reference to certain aspects, whether it was people or evil things, evil beings, evil itself being kept out of, the outside the gates of the New Jerusalem. Uh, this is my understanding of, of uh, being withheld from everything new that God has created, the, the replacement of the new heavens and the new earth, and instead banished to the realm that is meant to be a repository for evil or for those things that refuse to allow God to have his say. And then finally, we have Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 through 20, which we'll look at here shortly again in a different context. But God is working to reconcile everything, is one of my assertions here. And all created things, including spiritual beings, to himself. Now, I've heard it asserted, this is where we could easily go down a rabbit hole. Um, I'll try to avoid that. But I have heard it asserted that angels cannot repent. I have not found the scriptural evidence, not saying that it isn't there. I just haven't seen something that convinces me of the truth of that. And I do see in scripture that God is showing himself and his glory to all powers and dominions, which in every verse that refers to, like for example, we wrestle not with flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers in high places, right? These are references to evil beings that have a certain amount of sway, if you will, or uh, authority. And 
the same phrase is used also with God revealing his glory to principalities and powers. Also, reconciliation speaking in terms, and we'll come to that here in a minute, of both things above earth and under the earth and all created beings, all created things, etc. So I believe that God is working to reconcile everything. And if that would to include rebellious angels, who would I be to say that it's not possible to happen? I'm not convinced that that is impossible, but I don't know for certain that it is possible. So we had the fall of man, we had the fall of angels, the plan of redemption. When man disobeyed God, he became disconnected from the means of eternal sustenance. And I'm sorry for those of you that haven't been in on this, because that could be pretty unmeaningful, that phrase right there. Suffice it to say that our, uh, our physical understanding of life, um, if you talk to scientists and ask them what life is, they will basically tell you that it is teleonomy is what they, they refer to it as, but systems, so organic systems that are functioning. When the organic systems quit functioning, there's no longer life. When the organic systems do function, there is life. And they call it that functioning of those systems teleonomy. And so I took that and made the same statement about spiritual life, that there are spiritual systems in which we can take in spiritual resources and utilize them for spiritual growth and spiritual life. And when we are not spiritually alive, those resources, although they still exist in the spiritual realm, are doing us no good. Just like a stick that has, is dead, a dead branch, is, is no longer uh, participating in photosynthesis although the sun is still there and the nutrients and you can stick it in the ground and you can put water on it and that if the systems are not operating it will do it no good to have water soil and sunlight and the same is true for those who are spiritually dead being in a spiritual although they are spirit and they still have a spirit and there is a spiritual realm the spiritual resources available are not being utilized so when man disobeyed God, he became disconnected from the means of eternal sustenance. Uh, mankind was not only separated from the tree of life, but also from the source of life, which was a union with God. Rather than giving up on his intent, God chose to carry out a plan of redemption that would bring individual men and women back into the purpose for which they were created. God will give to each individual the same option he gave to the first man and woman. He will allow us to choose life or death. The plan God chose for this redemption was to come into his own creation as a man, constrained by the same physical nature as man, and live a life fully obedient to himself. From that position of moral purity, he will die a physical death, suffering the same consequence of sin that all other men suffer. And then through the power of life given to him by God the Father, rise from that state of death. By doing so, he would vanquish death, removing its power over mankind. In this process, he would also address the issues of moral governance by providing a substitutionary death the innocent for the guilty. 
This form of atonement accomplished all that was necessary to restore the moral order to creation and allow the personal beings who participate in this plan to be recreated into their intended existence, a never-ceasing spiritual being contained in God and his reality. This plan of redemption is a mystery and yet a reality. We don't understand all of its implications, but can experience the substance of his existence. When God told Adam he would die if he disobeyed God, um, he was referring to both a spiritual and physical death. Okay, the spiritual death was immediate while the physical took a while. So the result of Adam and Eve's sin was that physical death reigned. Everybody, including themselves, from that point forward, became mortal. And yet also there was a spiritual consequence. And this was back in the, when I talked about the fall of man, I talked about that, that separation from God. That is the spiritual death. So both a physical and spiritual death occurred. Spiritual death is a separation from the spiritual resources that sustain spiritual life. That's one of those assertions that I said were implied in there. Another assertion, God removed access to the tree of life. Everybody remember that? We don't need to look that one up. God removed access to the tree of life. Incidentally, this isn't in here. We'll come to that later. But do you know that God restores access to this tree of life, right? Everybody remember that? Revelation <laughs> chapter 21 and 22. We find that. The tree of life is available. Our sin removed access to God. Now, this is interesting to me. So Adam and Eve were accustomed to interacting with God, weren't they? And they continued to interact with God after they sinned, at least once, right? We have evidence of that. God came to them. You remember Adam tried to hide from God? So God interacted with them at that time. We also know that Enoch walked with God. We don't know exactly what that means. In other words, did God appear to them? Did, did Enoch hear him walking like Adam, Adam and Eve heard him? And that's why they ran to hide. It tells us that Noah walked with God. Did you know that? That's one that uh, a lot of people forget. One of the things that we see then throughout the Bible is that God becomes unapproachable. Now, one of the passages, well, you can remember Moses, for example. Remember, God put Moses in the cleft of the rock, and he covered. He said, I'll cover you with my hand. And then you can see my backside as I'm going by. And that's a result of the fall of man. Prior to the fall of man, God didn't have to do that with Adam and Eve. But we also see, um, for example, in 1 Timothy 6.16, you've heard of this, that God dwells in unapproachable light. And what is, what is light? What does that mean? Well, it could be metaphorical for truth, or it could actually be power. But in either case, what you find throughout the Bible multiple times, God taking steps to shelter mankind from his presence so that they aren't completely consumed and destroyed. And this was a result of our sin, the sin of Adam and Eve, but also our own sin. 
So God carried out a plan of redemption that would bring the option of salvation to all men. Now, here's this might be more controversial, but I want to emphasize this aspect only because there is there is a contingent of evangelical teachers that believe and teach what is called limited atonement. John Piper is one of those that would cover this well, and if you're interested in pursuing that idea, you can look up John Piper and some of his material. But I, I happen to not agree with his perspective on this, and that is um, God carried out a plan that would bring the option of salvation to all men and all mankind. And you'll find this, for example, and I just want to turn there. Let's turn to Romans chapter 5, verse 18. And, and the reason I really like using this verse to have this conversation is because when you want to find the scriptural evidence for the universal fall of man, you find it in Romans chapter 5. Paul lays that out very clearly there. But... In the very same verse, with the very same scope, you find justification also being talked about. And this is a little bit hard then to explain away when you find the same universality there. Chapter 5, verse 18, Romans 5, 18, says this. So then, as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. Universal condemnation, okay? Which was what? It was death, physical death, mortality, okay? We talked about that last time. Even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to some, to all men. Same comparison, same scope. Now, of course, there are some that would use this for what people that are referred to, sometimes refer to themselves, but mostly others refer to them as universalists, which is the universal salvation. This is one verse that uses that scope of justification, but plenty of verses that say that, it's li that the uh, salvation is limited to some. And so what's the difference? Well, let's, let's look a little bit more at some other verses, though. I, I want to point out there's more than one that says that. Titus 2.11 is another one. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Okay? Uh, pretty clear scope there. 1 John 2.2 2 is one more. He himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. So I've heard conversations and had conversations with people that believe in limited atonement. And when you say God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, they say that, well, that's not the whole world. It's just a generalization. But this says the whole world, and it's very clear in the Greek, as is Romans 5:18 and Titus 2:11. So it's not just one single verse there. It's the application, though. So we say God brought, as Paul said in Titus, bringing salvation to all men, yet not are all saved. So how is this? Well, if we go right back to Romans 5.18, the verse before that makes this clear. And if we put it together, I think it just makes everything, at least in my mind, it, it, it makes things pretty clear. If we look at verse 17, 
this is the application of salvation. Okay, so there's the availability of it, and then there's the application of it. Who does it apply to? So verse 17 in, in Romans 5 says, If by the transgression of the one death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. The application of it is to those who receive it. And it's referred to as abundant grace because it's a, there is enough for everyone, any who would receive it. If all received it, it would be adequate. The atonement was not limited to cover just a certain number, but it was universally available to all mankind in future as well as in the past. It was retroactively applied. And you'll find this, uh, that's not one of my assertions in what I read earlier, but you would find that in Romans chapter 3, that God passed over sins, it says, in the past. But he made the propitiation of Jesus Christ public so that people could understand how he could do that because that atonement was being applied to those in the past, including Abraham is the example that Paul uses in uh, chapter 3 and chapter 4 of how justification came by faith even for those prior to the atonement that was brought out publicly because the atonement applied even back then. So God carried out a plan of redemption that would bring the option of salvation to all men, all mankind. And the application of that salvation, the receiving of it, depends on each person. That's our part. That's our role. The availability of it was God's role. The application of it was our role. Now, there's a lot of verses to that. Maybe we'll look at just a few of them. John chapter 3 we're familiar with 316, and this is the, you know, whosoever's, whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But verse 18 also, he who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already. You see, the judgment that exists is universal. And so, therefore, the availability of salvation was the same universal availability, but it was applied individually for those who believe. They come out of that state of judgment into a state of non-judgment. They are not judged. He who does not believe is judged already. John 5, John 5, 24 this is Jesus speaking. I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. Passed from the death state into the life state. But if we look at, at Romans chapter 2, this gets people a little bit uncomfortable and some people happy. Romans 2, 5. It's hard to jump. How about four? Let's start at four. It's just hard to jump right into the middle of this. Do not think lightly of the riches of his kindness, 
I'm sorry, or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and, and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds. To those, now here's, here's the thing I want you to see. He's now going to, he's talking about two groups of people. Okay? To those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, what is it that he renders? Eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, what does he render? Wrath and indignation. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory and honor and peace to every man who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. May as well keep going here through verse 13. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. Now, this is a difficult passage for people to, to parse out and honestly for people to square with their, their doctrine of salvation. If you look at this passage, you ask yourself the question, those who are rendered eternal life, what is the basis upon which they are given eternal life? Well, one could say those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality they're rendered eternal life. But no, this is no different than believing him who sent me or receiving my words or receiving him. This is the same act, and it's still through Jesus Christ and his atonement that God can render eternal life to these people. But the point that Paul is making here is it's not those who have the information that all the detailed information that are blessed by God and have available to them the salvation of God, i.e., in this case, the Jews. But at the time, he's writing to, Roman, to Romans, right? He's writing to people in Rome. But there are, if you, as you study your church history, there were mostly Jewish people and in fact, for a long time, this was considered a Jewish sect. They were first called Christians, where in Antioch, I think it was. Why? Because they couldn't say they were Jewish anymore. They had to come up with some other label because so many non-Jewish people, so many Gentiles were becoming believers. And so they... They started to call them Christians or followers of Christ or little Christ. But for, for a long time, it was considered a Jewish sect. And Paul here is writing to Jewish people saying, and you, you find that just at the beginning of, of chapter 2, that, hey, just because you have the law does not make you right with God. And it's not only those who have the law that can be right with God. But any person who takes and 
this goes back to chapter one. If you start in chapter one, what you see, Paul's assertion here is that there is a universal revelation of God and his attributes that was given to all mankind. And anyone who responds to that in the positive will be taken by God at face value as having a desire to be his follower. Even if they don't know about Jesus, the atonement of Jesus can apply to them. Christ Jesus will be the means by which God can either defend or accuse a person by, based on the secrets of their heart. And if their pursuit was to find this God who has revealed himself to them and to walk according to the statutes that he has instinctively written on their heart and to live by those statutes and develop a conscience according to them, God sees that as a faith in him that is acceptable and allows him to apply the atonement of Jesus Christ. You find Paul, for example, taking advantage of this in Acts chapter 17 when he's in Athens. And he stands up and he says, he says, I, I recognize that all you guys are very spiritual people, very religious. And in fact, I found an altar to the unknown God. But I'm here to tell you about that unknown God. He quoted from their poets. He referred to their altar to the unknown God. And he brought light to them, but on the basis of the revelation that God had already brought to them prior to him. Now, he did the same thing with the Jews, didn't he? He said, I'm here to tell you about the fulfillment of these predicted events in Jesus Christ. They had more to go on. But it's the same message. And the question is whether or not we have received the abundance of grace that was given to all mankind, and really to us. The abundance of grace is given to us. So this isn't to say that somebody can reject Jesus and still be right with God. This is to say that somebody who doesn't know anything about Jesus can receive him. But nobody who rejects Jesus is going to be right with God. The kindness of God leads people to repentance. And I like what Dallas Willard says when he said, when I get around a group of people and they start talking about how all religions are pretty much the same, he, he says, I like to ask, what other religion says God so loved the world that he sent his only son? There isn't. This is a revelation that we have that not everybody has. And so you find people that don't know anything about Jesus hoping beyond hope that they might be acceptable to this unknown God who has revealed himself. And they'll be surprised to find that they are acceptable to him because that they didn't know about Jesus being what made them acceptable in the eyes of God. Lord, I am so grateful that you came and lived among us in, in the frailty of the human flesh, experiencing what we experienced in order to bring the love of God 
to a needy race, mankind. And um, I thank you, God, that you saw our need and you had compassion and pity on us and didn't just decide to wipe it all out and start over again. Thank you for your love and for the revelation of it. Help us to act accordingly, to receive it with joy and to believe on him who sent Jesus Christ. And I ask it for his sake. I know this is what he would want. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. Our vision is to see individuals fulfill their calling under the authority of the church using the resources of the kingdom of God. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to hear more messages by Tori Bjorklund, make sure to subscribe. And for more information on TRC Ministries or to contact us, visit our website at www.regenerationcenter.org.